0: Pinhouse is excited to announce that it will be hosting its inaugural YA Fiction Workshop this November at the Sylvia Beach Hotel in Newport, Oregon. This weekend workshop will be led by authors Nina LaCour, Morgan Parker, and Lilium Rivera and include scholarship opportunities, including one specifically for writers of color. Applications go live July 1st, and more information can be found at tinhouse.com slash workshops. Before we begin today's program, a conversation with Ted Chang, consider becoming a patron of Between the Covers. Tin House has offered an enormous variety of incentives for those listeners who become supporters. And Ted Chang has added to the bonus audio archive, the reading of an essay about capitalism, and what lies behind Silicon Valley's fear of super-intelligent AI. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program.
1: These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us.
0: I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. I had no idea how to write a novel. I didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. I was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the writer Ted Chang. Chang graduated from Brown University with a degree in computer science and is a graduate of the Clarion Writers Workshop, the premier workshop for writers of science fiction and fantasy. By day, Chang works as a technical writer in the software industry, but he is also one of the most celebrated science fiction writers of our time. A slow writer having written under 20 stories in the last 30 years, Ted Chiang has nevertheless won 27 of the major science fiction Mm -hmm. fantasy awards, including four Hugo Awards, four Nebulas, and four Locus Awards. His work has been anthologized in the Best American Short Stories, and his short story, Stories of Your Life, was the basis for the Academy Award-nominated film Arrival, starring Amy Adams. The arrival of Ted Chang's second collection of stories, Exhalation, is thus a significant event in the literary world. In that spirit, for only the third time ever, the New York Times included a separate section in its Sunday edition dedicated solely to a short story, in this case to one of Ted Chang's. With starred reviews from Kirkus, Publishers Weekly, Booklist, Bookpage, and Library Journal, Exhalation has been heralded by Colson Whitehead as lean, relentless, and incandescent. Blake Crouch adds that Ted Chang has no contemporary peers when it comes to the short story form. His name deserves to be mentioned in the same breath as Carver, Poe, Borges, and Kafka. Every story is a universe. Every story is a diamond. You will inhale exhalation in a single, stunned sitting because true genius doesn't come along nearly as often as advertised. This is the real thing. Karen Russell says, Ted Chang writes, with such a matter-of-fact grace and visionary power that one simply takes on faith that his worlds and his characters exist, whether they are human or robot or parrot, he is the rare author who makes me feel also that he believes in his readers, in our integrity, and our imagination. And finally, Asia Gable says, there's so much excellence in the labyrinth of ideas and exhalation. Machines that question free will, AIs that challenge love, software that shapes memory. What truly astounds is the tenderness that pulses through each story like a heartbeat. When I read Ted Chang, I am reminded not only of what might be, but what is, our own humanity, realized again and again through wonder, language, and empathy. He is not only at the top of his genre, but a true storyteller and one of our most skilled and fascinating. I'm so excited to live in a world where Ted Chang is writing. Welcome to Between the Covers, Ted Chiang.
1: Uh, Thank you, thank you. That was quite an intro.
0: (laughs) Well, you were a student at Clarion Writers Workshop, and then later on you were a teacher at the writing workshop. And that workshop, um, students live together for six weeks, and each week a different teacher comes for a week. And I've never done Clarion, but when I uh, took a workshop with Kelly Link, one of the things that struck me having only taken more conventional literary writing workshops was how different the approach was, uh, that she was drawing on a different tradition of sensibilities, of reader expectations, and there were different um, ways she would look at tropes within story structure. And I know your your approach to fiction is going to be particularly yours. It's not going to be representative of science fiction and fantasy versus literary workshops. But I still think it would be interesting to maybe start there a little bit with some of the things that are particular to the way you approach uh, a short story. One of the things that you said is that you've always been drawn to clear explanations, that a great explanation is not just useful, but can also be beautiful and even thrilling. And I think in a sense, we can view your stories as sort of as beautiful, thrilling explanations. So I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about this, um, your interest in um, fiction writing a- in a sort of explanatory mode.
1: So when I was young, say, you know, 11 or 12, I was reading Isaac Asimov's fiction and his nonfiction. For his, for his nonfiction, I remember, you know, I still remember some of the explanations that he gave for certain fundamental concepts like how uh, Eratosthenes estimated the diameter of the earth using just shadows or how Cavendish estimated the mass of the earth using just, you know, some lead weights hanging from thread. And I remember, you know, this, uh, this kind of thrill of understanding of uh w- when an idea became clear that it was a really profound experience and i think that some some science fiction can achieve a similar quality in in some ways i think it is a way of uh, evoking in readers the same thrill that scientists have when they make a scientific discovery, when they are uncovering new knowledge, um, I, you know, I assume you know, they, are, they experience uh, a real visceral uh, excitement. And I think that uh, some of the, the awe or sense of wonder that we associate with science fiction is very similar to that awe that scientists experience. So when I, I guess when I write science fiction, one of the things that I'm interested in is trying to uh, recreate that experience, having that experience where the, you know, the reader, along with the protagonist, gains some new insight, some new way of seeing the world. You know, I think that can be uh, a really powerful experience. And I think that's something that, yeah, that you know I find in from reading nonfiction about science, and in reading science fiction, and that's something that I value a lot.
0: So let, let's take that idea of approaching um, or aspiring for a beautiful and thrilling explanation in a, in a story, and and look at the first story in the collection, "The The Merchant and the Alchemist's Gate." What were what what is an explanation? that sort of undergirds that story for you? Well,
1: that story is not so much uh, about elucidating a particular scientific idea. That story is more about trying to reconcile, I guess, trying to reconcile oneself to the idea of fate. And can you understand fate and destiny as being something positive rather than the more typical negative associations of sort of doom and helplessness. Is there a way to accept the fact that some things are inevitable or some things can't be changed, but uh, find maybe solace in that rather than discouragement or uh, doom?
0: Well, can you speak to that? the story set up for this story, um, both the way you take uh, Kip Thorne's view of a time machine and twin it with a setting in ancient Baghdad.
1: So it's a, it's a time travel story, but it's also an attempt to emulate A uh, Thousand and One Nights. Uh, I thought it would be interesting to uh, combine those two because time travel stories, uh, they often have a... Uh, recursive element because uh, your characters may be traveling back to the same moment in time multiple multiple times, and A Thousand and One Nights is characterized by these sort of uh, nested stories where someone tells a story in which someone else tells a story in which someone else tells a story. So you know that seemed to me you know, that there might be some compatibility between those two, and. And again I thought that the the idea of uh acceptance of one's fate you know that is that is one of the pillars of Islam and so uh I thought that an Islamic setting might be an interesting place to tell a story about time travel where you can't change the past.
0: And and what about Thorne's idea of a time travel Door rather than a vehicle was compelling to you in this setting, too.
1: Okay, one of the things that I liked about Kip Thorne's uh, the, the the type of time machine that Kip Thorne invented um, was that it was very. It seemed very tangible to me. It seemed concrete in a way that the more the more common sort of DeLorean Back to the Future kind of time machine seemed kind of. Hand wavy, uh, so I guess in, in one sense, Kip Thorne's version of a time machine, that is something that I think someone in uh, medieval times could make sense of. Whereas, say, the DeLorean uh, from Back to the Future, I don't think someone in uh, <laughs> the medieval era would understand. You know, what are these? What are these? These numbers. Uh, this numeric readout you know right. they don 't have they, they can 't conceptualize what a numeric readout is that that's not, uh, that 's not that doesn 't make sense to them, but a pair of doors you know I feel like that 's something that you can you can demonstrate, and also you know the idea of you know this vehicle sort of m- magically vanishing and reappearing you know that seems very uh, that seems like something from a fairy tale. And yeah, again, you know, I think it's it's sort of hard to reason about uh how that works. Uh whereas the you know, the sort of pair of doors that Kip Thorne uh p- proposed uh you know, when I thought about it it's like, you know, I I can I can sort of reason about it how you know, how to make use of that. I uh I can make sense of it. I can, you know, I can sort of Extrapolate how it will work in a way that, you know, with the flying DeLorean, uh, I think, you know, that is, um, I, I would just have to take the creator's word for it.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to return to this. The first thing you said about this story, which I think is true about a lot of your stories is often taking a premise that might be otherwise viewed as uh, sad or despairing and find, like you're saying here, this idea of fate and then trying to, to d- portray it in a way where we could have solace in it. Uh, Cause one review of this collection described exhalation as black mirror for optimists. That seems interesting in a way that it's both are conceptually driven and puzzle-like, but unlike black mirror exhalation, isn't cynical or, or dark it, it, at all. And, and Joyce Carol Oates' review in The New Yorker is, is titled Science Fiction Doesn't Have to Be Dystopian. And it feels like um, m- in most time travel stories, people are going back to uh, right a wrong or motivated to right a wrong or to make amends or to stop an evil act in history. So to discover that one can't change the past would, in most of those stories, be a very a discouraging or sad thing. So I was wondering if maybe we could unpack that a little more, if you could talk more about the impulse to portray it as otherwise.
1: I feel like there are two separate questions there. One is sort of the question of how often is science fiction pessimistic or dystopian? And, you know, Black Mirror being sort of an example of that. And then there's the question of reconciling, reconciling ourselves to fate or the unchangeability of the past. Okay, so t- in terms of the first question, for, for a long time, science fiction was associated with um, a sort of techno-optimism or uh, sort of a boosterism uh, of technology, and you know, I, I think that was a re- reflection of a general attitude of optimism uh, about the future uh, as, as a whole and technology in, uh, in particular then as attitudes changed, you know, science fiction also changed, and then you started seeing a lot more dystopian views of the future, Uh, more explorations of the downsides of technology. You know, we've seen some of that uh, sort of replayed uh, again in... In the last twenty years, that in, specifically in terms of uh, digital technology, the dot com booms, the various dot com booms, and you know the various revolutions in personal computing technology, there's a period of immense optimism about them and their ability to, tr- to transform the world, and then more recently, there has been uh, a a reaction and a, a recognition of all the negative ways that they can that they have and could continue to affect the world. So Black Mirror is probably a product of or a reflection of you know, this more recent, uh, more pessimistic view of technology. I guess in in terms of discussing the implications of a new technology, I guess I personally am more interested in stories that that make a good case for both because i think you know m- pretty much all technologies there are good arguments in favor of them and there are good arguments against them and i think you know in general it's important for us to recognize that there's no technology that is simply one or the other there's there's been no invention for which undiluted optimism was the appropriate, you know, response, but also there's no technology for which unmitig- unmitigated pessimism was the appropriate response. And so I think that it's important to recognize that, that, you know, there are both positives and negatives, and we should ideally, you know, make considered decisions about technology in light of the advantages that they could bring and and the harm that they could bring. And so that that is something that, in the stories of mine, that deal with uh, a new hypothetical technology, that is, I think, the approach that I am trying to take.
0: Hmm. Well, I- I- in your non-writer life, you said that you used to consider yourself a pessimist rather than a cynic. But having seen how other people's behavior is... Malicious or hypocritical, you've since become more cynical. Nevertheless, it, to me, your stories seem, couldn't be less cynical, and that you've even described them as an attempt to resist the identification of materialism with nihilism. So I was curious how you square the writer and the work in this regard. Okay,
1: so when I was talking about, I was talking about resisting the uh, identification of materialism with. Uh, With nihilism, nihilism. Um, i guess that reflects my general philosophical stance in that you know i you know i'm an atheist and i believe that we are made of matter and uh not uh not spirit that there is uh there is no spiritual component to the universe but i think that that does not mean that that life is meaningless the way some people seem to seem to c- conclude from from that premise, I think that we are able to create our own meaning. Um, I don't think that we need a uh, a deity or uh, a supernatural component to the world in order to provide meaning for us. So, I'm trying to, I guess, counter this tendency that a lot of people have to thinking that. You know the fact that we are that we are just made of matter, this tendency for people to find that um disappointing or or uh depressing or somehow sapping the uh the meaning from life, you know viewing the the universe as being made purely of matter can be on the one hand you know really wondrous because it's it is i think genuinely amazing that uh that we are here and that matter is capable of creating us that uh that a purely physical universe can support can give rise to us um so yeah you know i think we can you know we can understand that and feel wonder at that. And also I think that the, the fact that we, we generate our own meaning, you know, we, we can decide for ourselves what our purpose is rather than having that imposed or, you know, uh, declared by some higher power. I think that we could view that as empowering Mm -hmm. instead of, uh, depressing.
0: In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Ted Chang about his latest story collection, Exhalation. One of the things you frequently return to in your work is the question of free will, often from the perspective that we might not actually have it, that the world might be more determined than we hope it is, and yet that it isn't something necessarily to despair over, kind of like we're talking about about materialism. Now, I was curious if you return to this theme of free will repeatedly because it is an alive, open question for you as a person, or instead because you feel strongly one way about it, but want to portray it in a, in a way that is more pa- palatable than it is often portrayed.
1: So uh, I'm a compatibilist. That uh, that means that I believe that the most meaningful definition of free will is one that is compatible with Determinism. This is a a well recognized philosophical stance on the question of free will, uh, but certainly not everyone not everyone believes in this stance. There are plenty of incompatibilists. I've come around to the uh, to the point of view that you know if you think about what it is that we want from free will, I think that uh, that is actually exactly what we have. Living in uh, a a universe that is purely made of matter and that follows physical laws, I think that uh, if you actually you know try and pin down what it is we want, you know what it is to really deserve the credit for your good deeds or deserve the blame for your you know bad deeds. I think that is uh, that is what we have, given that we are made of matter and uh, that we uh, are supremely complicated physical machines i don 't think that the things that people you know say they want from free will are better supplied if you posit that we are somehow made of spirit or have some non physical uh, mechanism at work, some violation of physical law uh, underlying us um, I don't think that you actually get those things uh, you, you don't get any more freedom or responsibility from that than you do from a world that is entirely physical
0: could Could you walk us through a little bit the questions you're exploring around free will and and anxiety is the dizziness of freedom, how you take some Issues around free will and twin it with some uh, theories in quantum mechanics
1: that story anxiety is the dizziness of freedom that's a story that's examining some of the i guess moral implications of the the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. Um, the many worlds interpretation is the idea that roughly speaking that our universe is constantly splitting off into many different versions so that there is a universe in which things are slightly different and that universe is exactly as real as our universe, has the same status, so that there is that there are almost an infinite number of these other universes in which things are slightly or greatly different uh, than they are here. There have been a lot of people who have, thought about what the moral implications of that are does that have any implication on uh, does it have any impact on the moral weight of what we do and some people have said well these you know we, we have no access to these un- other universes so for practical purposes they don't really exist you know uh, so they have no impact at all and other people think that the moral weight of their actions is nullified if there's a universe in which they are doing the other thing that uh, if you if you are taking every action simultaneously then you can't really say deserve any credit for doing the right thing in this universe
0: and tell us a little bit about what a prism is and the technology that you invented in in the story
1: so the hypothetical Uh, technology in my story is it's a device that when activated uh, leads to a a, uh, a splitting of the universe and it allows communication between the two branches that have split off uh, and only those the two branches that split off as a result of the activation of the device part of the reason that i was thinking about such a device was when I thought about the the more commonly depicted idea in science fiction where somehow you can choose a, another an alternate universe and create a portal and enter it and visit this other universe uh, I was so, sort of wondering like what does the what does the the user interface for that device actually look like how how can you possibly choose what alternate universe you uh, are trying to reach? When there are pretty much an infinite number of them, there's no way that you you know I I could not imagine a user interface that sort of lets you just choose uh, a universe out of out of the out of the infinitude of them. It seems to me that it would make more sense if there's a device which say there's a receiver in the other universe that you know your device is paired with your device is a transmitter and theirs is the receiver Uh, and then you know how would you actually establish a connection between those two in the first place it's like well actually they should be the same device Um, it's that device which was present at the branching of these two universes and so in a way it's it's a communication between two versions of the same device
0: And, and two versions of the same person in the sense that what would compel a person to obtain and, and activate a prism is because they're able to email or Skype or however they communicate across the prism, their, their, their alternate life and hear how that's going and hear what sort of, um, potentially gain insight from this alternate self.
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, because if enough time passes, uh, the version of you on the other side of, of the prism would uh, have a, a somewhat different life. Their their life would diverge from yours, and you know, eventually it might become quite different. And, you know, yeah, that might be something that people would be interested in.
0: Well, well another aspect of the way you construct stories that I think is really interesting is that you You need to know how the story ends as well as the arc of the protagonist before you begin writing. So I would love for you to talk to us about how that works for you. Um, And also once you, you've figured out the ending and presumably maybe even written the ending, what happens after that? When you're, when you're uh, drafting a story
1: in the past, you know, when I was younger, I would start writing stories where I didn't know how they were going to end. And, I was never able to finish those stories. Yeah, I started many, many stories and just uh, petered out. Uh, and so eventually I realized that I needed to know the ending uh, first. And if I knew the ending first, then I could finish the story. You know, that has become, yeah, my standard modus operandi. Um, and so for me, having that ending in mind. It gives me a destination to work toward so whenever I'm working on a scene you know whether it's really obvious or not I am always thinking about how does this scene support the ending that I want how will this scene contribute to uh, to, to getting to that destination
0: and are you typically writing in a a linear fashion towards the ending or is it more hodgepodge uh, after you have the ending established?
1: It is more of a hodgepodge. I am writing the scenes in no particular order. Yeah, I sort of jump around uh, working on different scenes, expanding them until eventually all the pieces uh, connect and then, then I have a complete story.
0: Well, on the macro level, there's a lot of circularity and recursiveness in many of your stories, both when you're engaging with time travel and also when you're engaging with memory. So it's interesting how there's also a circling or returning on the micro level that the first thing that you write is the last thing in the story and that we are returning to this first thing as the story finishes. And, And similarly, another aspect of your story structure reminds me of the themes on the macro level, too, because you are writing and we are reading toward the first thing that you wrote, and thus the oldest thing that you wrote. And we are also in one respect, because of this, we're moving toward the past, towards the oldest part of the story. And we also see this on the macro level in a good number of your stories, um, science fiction stories set in the past, or stories that are reconsidering Debunked ideas from the past as if they were true ideas. So imagining the world as if they, if these discredited ideas had been proven true, and I was hoping maybe you could talk more about your interest in using using discredited worldviews as as a, a way to build a world, an alternate past world.
1: First, I just want to say like I, I sort of feel like maybe this would be more interesting if you just talked. <laughs> uh, about my work rather than having me talk about I don't know my about work. that. Um, uh, cuz I think you know that's uh, it's 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 really interesting to hear how uh you interpret my work. But um but okay. Uh with regard to the question of examining sort of debunked ideas of the past. Yes, something that I have done uh in uh, multiple stories is take a uh, an outmoded scientific idea, a discredited scientific notion from the past, and imagine uh, what the world would look like if it were true because whenever I read about some discredited scientific idea, some you know how people in the past used to think the universe worked i I, I generally find that really interesting because because the people in the past, they, they were not dummies. You know it, it can be sort of easy or tempting to make fun of them uh, for believing in these things, but they didn't just you know they just didn't pull these ideas out of thin air. They had a certain set of observations, and they formed a hypothesis as for you know, how the universe would work in order to explain those observations. And so at the time, those were, you know, reasonable explanations for how the universe would work. It's only later on, as our set of observations grew, that we encountered, you know, uh, phenomena which disproved uh, these older theories. And then we came up with new theories uh, that, that were better explanations. But I... I do find it interesting to think about, you know, what what sort of observations would have been required to confirm those hy- earlier hypotheses. If uh they had continued to find evidence that showed that their original hypothesis had been correct, what would that universe look like? What are the implications of these Outmoded hypotheses, and yeah, I, I guess I think they are sort of a one way that we can think about the world, you know, differently than the way that we ordinarily think about it. I guess I, I, yeah, I think it's it can be um, a useful exercise in just thinking about how how a universe works, what sort of implications follow, um, how different assumptions give rise to other consequences and how things are sort of intertwined. I think it's, I guess, an interesting way to think about how a universe is put together.
0: Hmm. Well, my favorite story in the collection, I think, is a good example of this, Um, on Phallos, where you adopt the belief in young Earth creationism which was sort of a default belief until the 1600s. And you imagine a world where further evidence continues to prove the theory that the earth is way younger than we now believe. Um, and what's so amazing as a reader is that we, we are with a scientist. We're with an archaeologist. And like you say, these, these people aren't dummies. But in this case, the archaeologist is discovering things that reconfirm their faith in their belief in the world and how old it is while doing a truly scientific and rational methodology. So you've twin, you've twinned science and awe and wonder because they'll discover occasionally they'll unearth trees without growth rings or skulls without sutures or mummified humans without navels. And they know when they do that, they're unearthing the first generation that was created by God to populate the earth that didn't have predecessors. And I was hoping maybe you could talk about the appeal of this story for you and and, or and or maybe some of the challenges of of imagining yourself into this mindset of our uh, protagonist.
1: There have been a number of people who in recent, uh, I guess, in the last couple hundred years who have attempted to defend young Earth creationism by uh explaining that it makes sense that the earth would appear to be very very old even though it's very young and they have they have constructed arguments for um why we should expect the earth to look very old when it is in fact very young and when i thought about it i was like actually i i don't think that's i don't think that follows at all i think that it is Entirely possible, and maybe even you know m- more sensible and or more honest that if the world were of recent origin, you could tell that there would be internal evidence supporting that fact. If if God if God created, let's say the Garden of Eden, and there are trees in the Garden of Eden, and you cut one of those trees, you know why should there be growth rings indicating, you know, summers and winters that that tree had experienced. Is that a logical necessity? I don't think it is. No. Um, so it seems like if the Earth were of recent creation, there should be evidence of it. And, you know, we can imagine, you know, sort of what that evidence would look like because w- we have plenty of evidence which suggests that the earth is really really old, and so you know if you just sort of run down that list of all that evidence, you can imagine all the things that would have to be different uh if the world had been created recently mm. and yeah you know it it's it's kind of an interesting it's kind of an interesting uh list because there there's all sorts of evidence you know which you know uh, i don't i don't mention in the story but there are, you know, there are ice cores which record sort of weather patterns going back, you know, tens of thousands of years. And, you know, there are, uh, these cores of, you know, sort of uh, mud from uh, river floods that, again, go back tens of thousands of years. Yeah, we have a pretty good idea of things that happened tens of thousands of years ago. And, you know, if the Earth were recently created, you know, those things ought to look very different.
0: In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to the writer Ted Chang about his latest collection, Exhalation. I I wanted to ask you about science in relationship to your stories. You've talked about the idea of the critic John Clute, the notion that certain scenarios are easily storyable, meaning they are well-suited to be told as story. And you've also quoted Faulkner before as saying, the only thing worth writing about is the human heart in conflict with itself and said that science on its own does not have enough to sustain a fictional narrative. And that for you, that is where science fiction comes in the use of science in fiction to illuminate the human condition. But I I was curious about storyable versus non-storyable in your mind, because I would imagine that many of the philosophical and scientific ideas that inspire your stories Others would see as unstoryable. Is it the challenge of taking an unstoryable idea and making a story out of it that motivates you, or do you simply see these as storyable from the outset?
1: Um, it's not a, a contrarian impulse that motivates me. Um, I'm not looking to prove uh, that things are storyable when they don't seem storyable. When I was talking with John Clute about storyable ideas, it was in the context of why there aren't more novels addressing climate change. And he thought it was maybe because climate change was not a very storyable subject. And if I were, if I were motivated by a contrarian impulse, I probably would have immediately set out to try and write uh, something about climate change. Um, uh, but I have not, because, yeah, I guess I I wasn't trying to, you know, prove him wrong or anything. I guess the you know the things that I write about, they're subjects that I find myself just thinking about again and again without not really intending to. So they are the things that obsess me in 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 some sense. I wind up thinking about ways in which I can I can dramatize what I find interesting. About these ideas, so I I I wind up trying to come up with dramatic scenarios to uh, to illuminate these philosophical questions.
0: Well, I wonder, like you know, like I was saying, maybe your stories wouldn't, your story ideas might not seem storyable until you've done them. Maybe you've, maybe in a way, you're showing. The way they can be storyable, because I think of, say, like writers from, say, Richard Powers to Jeff Vandermeer who are sort of struggling with making story out of climate change. I'm wondering if maybe in 30 years, 20 years, it will become storyable through these gestures of, of, uh, of trying to make it storyable i
1: think probably there are a lot of things which seem unstoryable until someone actually does it and then yeah. uh you know in retrospect we see like oh yeah it was obvious all along i mean it wasn't obvious but when someone first comes up with the idea then you know that that offers a way for other people to think about that idea and to uh uh to think about it in story terms, and as something that uh, can be a dramatic vehicle.
0: Hmm. Well, you were part of a multimedia project of interspecies translation, of which the written component became your story, The Great Silence, from the point of view of endangered Puerto Rican parrots. And one thing behind the story is the Fermi paradox that Despite how vast the universe is and how old it is, there, there's no signs of life anywhere except on Earth. And the narrator observes that even as humans search for extraterrestrial life in the great silence, they can't hear the voices and messages and cries being sent from all the species here on the planet that they share. Uh, and I wonder if this comes back to the question of storyable. The stories that we tell are usually human-centric if it simply is more storyable to imagine traveling into space and exploring and problem solving with us at the center, than it is to listen to and, and contend with the desires and needs of other creatures that we are around all the time.
1: The idea of exploring outer space. Uh, I think part of the real reason it's appealing and I can't deny that, you know, I have an emotional attachment to that idea. But I think part of the reason it's appealing is it reminds us of, uh, the idea of, you know, being on the frontier of being pioneers. Uh, it's a kind of story that we grew up with. Um, especially, I mean, especially in America that we grew up with the idea of, uh, pushing ever outward. Uh, so I think that that is a, uh, that's a kind of narrative which we can also impose on space travel. And that makes it something appealing and sort of, uh, resonant for us. And likewise, the idea that there might be things out there, um, uh, you know, I think, yeah, that fits very well with that, uh, that narrative. By contrast, recognizing the, recognizing the intelligence or, um, acknowledging the experience of animals on earth that I think is, um, probably, uh, troubling to us. Um, I think we resist it because historically we have treated animals very badly. We're not consciously trying to denigrate them, but acknowledging their experience or trying to give them uh, greater status as um as agents or as, you know, ethical actors or, or beings worthy of, uh, ethical treatment that forces us to confront the, uh, the enormity of, you know, what we've done in the past and, um, and that's uncomfortable. So that's not something that is something that's, that's not something that's really attractive, uh, to a lot of people.
0: Well, one of the things that the story of the Great Silence points to is maybe a failure of human imagination around this yearning for otherness when we have the otherness right right next to us, and the ways human imagination might even work ag- against us and It reminded me of the essay that you wrote in BuzzFeed about our fear of artificial intelligence and how it is how you think it's really a misplaced fear that is really the fear of ourselves within a capitalist society. And I was hoping maybe you could just unpack what you were exploring in that essay a a little bit for us.
1: That essay is a response to uh, some of the articles that we've been seeing more recently about the fear that a super intelligent AI uh, would be created and then uh, take over the world and possibly destroy humanity without necessarily intending to but uh, just as a side effect of it pursuing the goals that we programmed into it and I thought that this fear made made no sense uh, that there'd be no way that there'd be no reason to think that a super intelligent AI would would do these things which, Seemed completely ridiculous, and uh, it seemed to me that uh, this scenario could be better understood as kind of a fear of being outcompeted by by better capitalists than we are. Uh, the idea that an AI might be better at capitalism than any human is. And thus, it might crush us the way that um, successful corporations crush other companies and also anything else that gets in their way. so yeah you know, it, it seemed that you know the the behavior that um, some people were attributing to super intelligent AIs you know a kind of um, victory at any cost no holds barred uh damn the consequences kind of attitude that's those are all attributes of um late capitalism mm-hmm. and so i felt like you know they are kind of projecting onto these hypothetical uh super intelligent ais they're projecting onto them the characteristics that that we practice that we praise in companies now uh, to you know to some extent we you know we praise Silicon Valley companies people invest in them be- precisely because they are ruthless because uh they established complete market dominance mm-hmm. um, that's what that's what investors want from a company that they are putting money into but that's uh <laughs> that's also what we seem to fear from a super intelligent AI.
0: Well, not only do you not portray AI as cold and, and ruthless and menacing, but you're very skeptical of the idea that we could create AI consciousness fully formed because you argue that consciousness doesn't work that way or evolve that way. So something you could talk to us about your dissatisfaction about the idea that one could just invent a truly conscious artificial intelligence versus the way that you you portray a possible, a possible avenue for artificial intelligence in in the life cycle of software objects.
1: There's this very common idea in science fiction that an artificial intelligence, you know, like a, some robot butler will be something that, you know, you sort of take out of a box and flip a switch. And then suddenly you have this perfectly obedient, uh, supremely competent servant who is, uh, absolutely, uh, loyal, um, but also in some way conscious, you know, the idea is that it's not simply like a Roomba that, uh, it actually, there's, there's something in there that seemed to me, you know, a fundamentally, a fundamentally contradictory notion that, you could just flip a switch and something would wake up and know all these things and uh, have all these skills and also have exactly uh, the set of goals that, that you want. Because if you look at, if you look at uh, human beings and you think about what does it take to get a good human butler – you know a child does not make a good butler it <laughs> you know, yeah yeah you yeah know, uh it is it takes many years before a child can even be a candidate for being a good butler Ch- children children are you know extraordinarily smart in many ways, but they also they also are extraordinarily you know foolish and ignorant and just unaware of so many things that, uh, that you want in a butler. And so why do we think that it'd be easier to get all of these characteristics uh, in, in an AI uh, when they're actually really hard to achieve in a human being?
0: It feels like you're troubling the distinction between the biological and the artificial too. I don't know if that's, if that's what you're going for necessarily, but part of what I was thinking about was how with your description of the world being mechanistic and determined people who are pessimistic about that idea might say, well, you're describing us as robotic, let's say. And, and, um, even though you're infusing it with meaning and wonder, Instead, so you, you're complicating this idea of what a deterministic world would would be like or is like. Um, and on the flip side, we have these artificial intelligence, which many would portray as mechanistic, and yet at the same time, you argue that it takes time and good parenting for a consciousness to develop, whether it's in a a metallic casing or in a carbon-based casing
1: well uh so one of the things that some uh philosophers or computer scientists say is that you know of course it's possible for a machine to be intelligent because that's what human beings are human beings are machines and we are intelligent it just so happens that we are made out of carbon but you know we are extremely complicated machines uh I think that any machines that we make that if if we ever expect to make a machine that is conscious that has uh self awareness that is remotely comparable to that of a human being, it will necessarily have to develop in you know, roughly analogous ways. You know, there there could and you know very likely would be you know enormous differences but I, I I think that it may be you know intrinsic to the nature of consciousness that it is something that uh, comes about gradually that um, it's it's something that inhabits a body uh, it it learns how to uh, manipulate things using that body it learns how to navigate an environment with that body it gradually comes to understand uh, how people behave how uh, their actions influence the actions of others and it it continues to do all of that with a greater and greater degree of uh, sophistication and subtlety and and that is that is what it means to to be a person to have person-like characteristics. And if we, you know, if we actually want a machine with person-like characteristics, which, you know, I don't know that we actually do, but if we if we decide that we do want that, then I think that uh, it will be a very laborious and painstaking process to bring that about.
0: Hmm. Well, I would love to talk about one last story, uh, which is the truth of of fact, the truth of feeling in it, you ask what it would be like to have a perfectly accurate memory. And in this story, children are growing up doing something called life logging where they can record access and share every moment in their lives. And while the story does explore the possible harms, it asks whether forgiveness might actually be tied to the ability to forget for one thing. It also contextualizes this new technology alongside an older yet equally monumental shift in our relationship to language and memory. So I I was wanting you to talk about the juxtaposition between this future technology of life logging and, uh, and the very ancient technology of, of writing uh, and, and what you're going for when you interbraid them in this story.
1: You know, when I was thinking about the, you know, the ramifications of computer technology and how it might, you know, change the way we think, how, you know, we are, you know, becoming sort of uh, increasingly dependent on digital technology. I I wound up thinking about the last time that a human invention uh, had a radical impact on the way we think. Um, Or maybe not the last time, but maybe the first time. And that was with the invention of writing. If you read about uh, the introduction of writing, of literacy to cultures that were previously exclusively oral in their uh, communication, you realize that the technology of writing had an enormous impact on the way people view the world um and the way that they understand language itself that is something that i think we um it's very easy for us to forget because we are so used to literacy we sort of f- uh forget that people people have lived Thousands, many thousands of years without writing, that there are people who today you know, live in complex societies without the use of writing. They have art, they have music, they have a sophisticated culture, you know, they have traditions and customs, and, and they do it all uh, without the written word. And the introduction of the written word uh, changes things. For us, you know, who live in a world of the written word, you know we tend to think of literacy as as an unalloyed good you know that you know we think literacy is great you know and i'm I'm definitely on that side I'm definitely you know in favor of literacy, but for people who live in an oral culture uh, literacy can seem really strange um I don't know if they would. Uh, I don't know if if they would say it was dehumanizing, but it is a it requires a real a real shifting of you know one's mental landscape to uh, to live in a world where everything is dependent on the written word, in which everything is mediated through this technological invention, where people communicate. Uh, with it, where they place enormous emphasis and importance on, you know, these symbols. Uh, That is something that, you know, probably seems uh, uh, unnatural.
0: And maybe analogous to, for instance, when I'm reading this story, The Truth of Fact, The Truth of Feeling, and I'm feeling a sense of horror about this future technology, life logging, which is uh, offloading and mediating our memory. And then you twin it with this shift from oral to written in the past it it makes me feel like writing is the first form of life logging because we're gonna i mean even with memory, we write something down. Yes,
1: I can easily imagine that to an oral to some to a member of an oral culture uh, our obsession with writing uh would seem really bizarre. it seems. Kind of fetishistic to attribute so much importance to sort of uh, build your life around you know these little squiggles on paper, <laughs> right. uh, and yet you know we think from our perspective that it's good that it uh, you know it's ultimately a positive thing. It's it it it's been a, a boon, and you know I think yes it has been a boon, but there's also a perspective worth remembering that we may have lost something when we gained literacy. Hmm. I think on balance, you know, we gained more than we lost, but there is still, I think a, you know, a valid case to be made that we did lose something.
0: Well, I wanted to ask you something as a teacher, since you are also a teacher sometimes of, of writing of words. uh, When I had Joe Walton on, who likewise didn't go to a writing school, um, and was, and is a writer squarely in, in the world of genre writing, she found the desire or need to develop her own terminology. Like she came up with different words that she wasn't seeing uh, that would describe things that she would do. Uh, so she has terms like including and protagonismos and mode that she invented and then teaches. And I was just curious if there were, Ted Chang specific approaches that you employ when you're in the role of, of a writing teacher, or if not a, a writing advice that you receive that stuck with you, that you pass on as, as you find yourself in the role of, of uh, looking at other people's manuscripts or, or, giving them feedback on their writing.
1: Well, I mean, I don't have any, um, I guess uh, I haven't, I don't have any invented vocabulary similar to what, joe walton has but i guess something that i i often focus on when talking to students about their stories is because as you know in the context of writing speculative or fantastic fiction you know i i guess I, i i often ask them you know to think about you know what what is the role that the fantastic is playing in your story what is the work that the fantastic is doing, I think that it is important to think about what it is that you're trying to say with the fantastic in your story, that you as a writer should have a clear sense of why this is a story involving the fantastic or the speculative. Because I think the fantastic and the speculative can be powerful tools, but I think it's important that uh, the writer be conscious in their use of those tools, mm. that they f- be thinking about you know, what sort of weight those elements carry in their story.
0: Mm. And there's a, a quote by Annie Dillard that was important to you. You have been sent here to give voice to your own astonishment. What, what speaks to you about that quote?
1: I, I think that quote succinctly sums up why uh, I'm a writer? Why I think um, a lot of people are writers? It's because there is something that you find interesting, and other people they they currently don't find it interesting, but they could if you can explain it to them correctly. Um, if you can explain to them why you find it fascinating, and I think you know that is in a lot of ways what the job of the writer is Hmm. that um, trying to convey your your excitement or your fascination or your amazement at some idea something which you know if it's uh, presented poorly or you know unexplained you know seems just bizarre or nonsensical but if you can if you can explain it to them the right way, they will be amazed in the same way that you are amazed.
0: Mm, I love that. What well, was the pleasure having you on Between the Covers today, Ted?
1: Thank you very much for having
0: me. We're talking today to the writer Ted Chang about his second collection of stories, Exhalation. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naaman, your host. <laughs> Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. Ted Chang has added to the bonus audio archive a reading of an essay about why exactly Silicon Valley fears superintelligent AI. This joins supplemental material by Marlon James. Carmen Maria Machado Sheila Hetty John Keen Christine Scutt Christina Rivera Garza and others all of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers finally I'd like to thank Imre Ladrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro their album Imre Ladrog is "Sapatita Me" can be found on iTunes and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.